Welcome to Health Research Tutors. This is a podcast from the National Institute for Health Research for health and social care professionals engaged in research. I'm joined today by Julie Lovegrove. Professor Lovegrove holds the Hugh Sinclair Chair of Human Nutrition at the University of Reading, where she is also Director of the Hugh Sinclair Unit of Human Nutrition and Deputy Director of the Institute for Cardiovascular and Metabolic Research. She has over 30 years of research experience in studying the role of nutrition on cardiovascular diseases with a focus on the metabolic impact of dietary fats, plant phytochemicals, nutrient gene interactions and personalised nutrition. Professor Lovegrove serves on a number of external committees including the UK Government's Scientific Advisory Committee for Nutrition and she is currently President of the Nutrition Society. Professor Lovegrove, thank you very much for speaking with us today. You're very welcome, Alan. Earlier this year, an article was published highlighting the challenges of performing dietary research. And in that, they said, compared with pharmaceutical research, studies evaluating diet or dietary interventions have far greater challenges in terms of consistency, quality control, confounding, and interpretation. And it's really those sort of challenges that I'd like to discuss with you and to find out about a little bit about your own experiences of overcoming them. So can I begin by asking you, first of all, do you agree with that statement? And if so, how would you define the challenges that you face in your research? Yeah, I mean, I think any research has its challenges and, and nutrition research, particularly compared with perhaps clinical research like drug studies. Mm-hmm. When you think of um, adding perhaps a, a drug to your uh, regime, then it's a relatively simple uh, addition. If you think of diet, then it's much more complex. We very rarely have a true placebo in nutrition, mm-hmm. so mm. we don't, um, we can't compare our active food or ingredients with with a placebo, and so we always have controls, but mm. they may not be truly a placebo, mm. which, by definition, is uh, um, an equal uh, treatment without the bioactive, yeah. but it is is yeah. the same in every other way. I think also um, diet is so much more than just getting nutrients for. Um, for health and mm. so it's part of uh, our social mm-hmm. structure um, we eat for many reasons yeah. so if you ask someone to change their diet it can be very difficult and mm-hmm. um, so I think that's a big, big challenge yeah. and that obviously leads on to compliance mm-hmm. and we're very careful with compliance we give people very detailed dietary advice um, and we monitor them carefully and we also uh, look at compliance of whatever we're, we're mm-hmm. uh, investigating um, but sometimes I think compliance is difficult uh, and we have to um, also uh, determine how they eat and perhaps we need to give the family the same sorts of yeah, foods that yeah. they're intervening. So there are quite yeah. a few challenges. Mm-hmm. Consistency um, was one of the other um, comments in the article. I think if we're looking at um, nutrients, we don't actually eat nutrients, we eat food through yes, diets. Yeah. And so if you are looking at, for example, um, saturated fats, Mm -hmm. you can't eat just saturated fats. Mm. You have to have foods that contain saturated fats. Mm -hmm. And perhaps if you're buying them uh, or using natural foods, then the consistency of of the quantity of Mm -hmm. fats in them may may vary. Uh, We do often get um, companies to make the intervention foods for us that to a very high standard and are very Mm -hmm. consistent Mm -hmm. and use just one batch. But again, if you're using natural products, that may not be as consistent mm-hmm. than, for example, in the drug where mm-hmm. you're, you're putting mm-hmm. an exact amount in. Um, also, uh, you mentioned uh, confounding. Um, and I think in any study there is confounding. And if you have 
for example, a drug study, it may be that other people change other aspects of their lifestyle that mm -hmm. may impact mm -hmm. on the outcome. But in uh, nutrition studies, that may be perhaps more challenging because uh, people may change their diet in other ways than the ways you, you're asking yes. them to change it. Um, so, uh, for example, if we're getting them to reduce uh, their uh, saturated fat in their diet, you're asking them to perhaps reduce a, a food such as butter, mm -hmm. um, you have to replace it with something. So yeah. it's not just yeah. the, you know, the, the taking away of that food. So you say you replace it with some sort of vegetable oil. Um, uh, then you know you don't know necessarily whether there's a, it's the taking away of the butter or the adding of the oil mm. that's actually having the effect. So that can be perhaps a confounding factor or, or involved with interpretation of the data. Yeah. Um, and confounding, as I say, it can, can be in many studies. We in uh, nutrition studies try to use very robust studies. For clinical studies, it's usually random control trials that are placebo controlled. We very much try to use that, but it may not be the ideal for all nutrition studies. Yeah. Um, we often use placebo control studies and prospective cohort studies um, where we look at someone's diet, perhaps over a longer period of time and then seeing what they die from. But of course, in that interim, there may be other changes in lifestyle mm -hmm. um, and uh, also reverse causality where someone may be diagnosed with a condition and therefore change their diet yeah, because of yeah, that. Yeah. Um, so again, interpretation in those prospective cohort studies may also be challenging. Mm -hmm. You've obviously there highlighted quite a lot of the important differences between dietary and other forms of intervention. And I suppose recognising those differences is maybe the first step in, in trying to deal with them. But I imagine it probably comes down to design and the actual execution of the studies yeah. that you have to do. Could you maybe just elaborate a little bit on that? I mean, how do you overcome some of these practical things? You already hinted at, for example, um, having more consistent uh, products to mm. give to people, whatever. But I imagine there's other aspects of that as mm. well that, that you have to deal with. So yes, when I do my studies, obviously they're as robust as they can be. Yeah. Randomly controlled trials um, are a study design I use a lot yeah. in, in my yeah. research. Uh, as I say previously, placebos are very uh, infrequent in nutrition yeah. research. Mm -hmm. There has been a number of studies we've done where we have got a, a true placebo. Yeah. So for example, we're interested in looking at nitrates found in different vegetables. Yeah. Uh, beetroot is a, is a common uh, nitrate-rich vegetable. And mm. we had uh, a, a beetroot juice that had, had nitrate taken away taken from it yes. so it had all of the other components it was still perfect it had the better laying than other yeah. other components but it didn't have the nitrates and yes. that was a very good placebo yes. mm -hmm. another study i did was looking at quercetin a, a type of flavonoid compound found in fruits and vegetables mm -hmm. generally given the color um, and again we had some quercetin rich onions grown and some quercetin po poor onions grown mm -hmm. and therefore again we yeah. we could use those mm -hmm. and that's relatively unusual um, but you know, obviously we use that if we have it. Mm -hmm. With other studies, um, such as, as, a for, as the example of saturated fat, where we are removing saturated fat-rich foods, it may be a number of different foods, such as you know, butter is rich in saturated fats, perhaps snack foods, um, perhaps dairy foods that we uh, ask people to use the, the lower uh, fat varieties. Then we use a control, so we um, get people to have you know, an oil instead of the butter, mm -hmm. perhaps the um, lower fat dairy products and don't be high fat di dairy products and so on so it's not a true placebo but it's a mm. control and mm -hmm. we always make sure that we do have a suitable control right. um, but not always a placebo mm -hmm. um, as we say consistency in foods again we do engage with the food industry and I think it's important that we do but so that they can we can get consistency in our products mm -hmm. yeah. um, some people um, 
are very reductionist and they look at certain nutrients themselves like they might look at a flavonoid that's been isolated from the food yes. and again that can be mm -hmm. consistent mm -hmm. but the trouble with that is that we don't eat them as that generally yes. and yeah. it's much better in my opinion to, to look at foods because that's mm -hmm. what we ultimately almost eat. becomes more pharmaceutical then yeah, doesn't exactly. it? Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely and with that you can get placebos again yeah, yeah. Um, but but there are other components of uh, for example flavonoids high in blueberries and they've yeah. got quite a lot of interest in blueberries uh, and it's hard to have a placebo to that yeah, um, yeah, so mm -hmm. again is it perhaps the other components within it that might yeah. also add to yeah, it or yeah, have some yeah, of this yeah, effect yeah. Um, so there's a number of, of ways in which we can try and um, help in these challenges mm -hmm. within within the studies mm -hmm. um, the in clinical studies often you use an intention to treat statistical analysis so yes. all of the subjects within yeah. the, the study are even if they drop out or included. Yes. We do do that, but usually we use a pair protocol, which is just looking at the people that complete the study. Yes. And this, we think, is more appropriate for nutrition studies, but often is criticised um, in by um, medical journals when we're trying to get our, our studies yes. published. Mm -hmm. So again, I think it's an understanding of the science of nutrition, which yes. is different from perhaps clinical studies, mm -hmm. particularly by funders and, and, and also yeah. by journals yeah. that might yeah. help us. Yeah. Uh, and, and just another uh, comment is in a lot of clinical studies there's funding to to look at the impact of say a drug statin for example on death so people mm -hmm. uh, are followed up over a longer period of time whilst taking the drug um, and funding is available for that uh, mm -hmm. um, however in nutrition studies if we do an intervention which is the strongest evidence where we actually change someone's diet mm -hmm. rather than just looking at associations mm -hmm. Um, those studies are very difficult to fund and, yeah. and, and very very difficult to, to perform and there are very few examples of these mm -hmm. um, and so often we do have to use validated biomarkers of risk mm -hmm. such as for example our low density lipos and cholesterol or blood pressure mm -hmm. which we know are related to cardiovascular yeah. disease for example but not necessarily yes. uh, the, the yeah. death because yeah. of you know this, mm -hmm. this challenge of mm -hmm. actually doing those so just to put it into context, I wonder if you could give us maybe a specific example of the, the kind of clinical research study you've been involved in, which has successfully studied a, a dietary intervention. Yeah, so we do a number of studies. Uh, one example that comes to mind is a study that was funded by the Medical Research Council called the RESET Study. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a, a randomly controlled trial um, that was double, uh, double blind, which means that both the investigators and the volunteers were blinded to the treatments. Right. Uh, what we were interested in in this study is to look at the impact of uh, dairy products that had lower levels of saturated fat in them right. um, and looking at the impact of these on cardiovascular risk markers, particularly our primary outcome measure with uh, LDL cholesterol, uh, low density lipoprotein cholesterol, a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. The approach we use for this, rather than skimming the, the fat off the milk, which um, has been done, mm -hmm. this then re-enters the food chain in another mm -hmm. form and therefore you get no benefit to the, the population. What we did is we changed the diet of the cow, feeding it um, high oleic sunflower oil um, and the milk that these cows in our farm at Reading University produced was uh, had lower saturated fat right. and higher monounsaturated right. fat and this exchange has been shown to be beneficial mm -hmm. in other studies. Um, the milk that we collected we then made into butter and cheese and UHT milk in our processing hall at the University of Reading. Um, and then we used these food products, uh, compared them with conventional dairy products 
in uh, two human intervention studies. Right. Um, these studies, the participants were given um, a certain amount of milk, cheese and butter to consume for a 12 week period. So they were randomized to either the um, modified dairy or the controlled dairy. Um, and then they consumed these products for a uh, 12 week period. Then they had uh, a six week washout period and then consumed the opposite. So yeah. it, they worked with their own control, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. was quite a strong design. We brought them in um, to initially to measure a lot of outcome measures such as blood pressure, such as blood levels of different biomarkers of risk such as LDL cholesterol and insulin glucose um, at baseline and then after uh, each of the interventions. Mm -hmm. uh, and with any of the uh, human intervention studies we always find that a running period is important because people gets people used to being on the diet, yeah. on the study, mm -hmm. and any changes that they may do, either consciously or subconsciously, because they are a volunteer, um, are happen before the study starts, so right. it's not confounding right. the results of that study. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we found that the study uh, was had good results and that the, the modified dairy products actually had beneficial effects right. on right. the health of the blood vessel uh -huh. and mm -hmm. also mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. the LDL cholesterol level. I mentioned right at the beginning that you've worked in this area for over 30 years and obviously you've probably seen a lot of changes and developments during that time. I just wonder if you could look at the next part of your career and perhaps looking into the future. Mm. What do you see over the horizon? Um, is there anything exciting and interesting that we can look forward to in the world of nutritional research? Mm. I, mean, I think it's fast growing mm -hmm. um, and I think you know, nutrition, I may be a bit biased, but you know, it's such an important yeah. uh, science. Mm -hmm. And it's beca becoming more recognised as yeah. that, and, mm -hmm. I, and I think that's really important. I think where we're going in the future in, in all uh, perhaps medicine and nutrition is prevention is better than cure. And yes. I think it's been a saying and it, you know, it really is true. If we can prevent these diseases happening, mm -hmm. then it will be much more beneficial than having to treat people yes. when they mm -hmm. are diagnosed. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, nutrition is absolutely unique in that we all need to eat. Yes. We eat from birth and actually before because mm -hmm. through, the, you know, through the placenta from, uh, from our uh, mother, so it really has uh, a unique impact on our you know, life, health, and, and also disease mm -hmm. prevention. Mm -hmm. uh, I think changing habits is, from an early age, is an important mm -hmm. uh, aspect of nutrition, and I think it is challenging. We need to perhaps engage with our colleagues in psychology because I think behavior change is difficult, yes. and we need to ensure that people understand why they're doing it and mm -hmm. ways in which motivates people to change and we will have different reasons for change, we will yes. have different motivators yes. and, and that's a really exciting yes. mm -hmm. uh, new venture. Um, I'm really interested in personalising advice and I think that people we have found and others that if we personalise advice to someone they understand that that is the advice that would actually have benefit to them yes. rather than necessarily more generalised advice then I think it, well it does motivate mm -hmm. people to change yes. more as mm -hmm. we need to find ways in which we can motivate people to change and personalise their advice. Um, so again, it may be by looking at their diet or their phenotype, or you know what their blood chemistry looks like, or even their genes, which yes, is interesting. Yes. But mm -hmm. we're not there yet, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But that's that's very exciting. Uh, I think with nutrition, one of the challenges actually measuring what people consume sounds easy. One yes. of our biggest challenges, but we're moving very um, much forward, looking at biomarkers of intake. Yes. So taking perhaps urine samples, blood samples, and it's a very much more objective measure because mm -hmm. we're not always that honest when we're asked about what we consume. Yes. So that's a new area, and I mm -hmm. think we're moving forward. Using technology, we're using very exciting the way we can assess people's diet. We've we've, we've developed an app where we give personalised, automated advice to someone. Mm -hmm. Means that we can uh, look at a large population remotely, 
so much more reach. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's that's great. And I think our ambition is to, to have sustainable nutrition for all um, that's cost effective. Yeah. It is a big challenge with the growing population, growing aging population, but I think that you know, working with our colleagues across disciplines, then you know, I'm hopeful we will get there in the future. Professor Lovegrove, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us today. You're very welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to Health Research Futures, a podcast from the National Institute for Health Research.